You're listening to episode 91 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. When Alice Fay walked out on her contract in 1945, it wasn't simply because she hated the studio boss, Daryl Zanuck. She left because she never learned how to live. At the time, Alice was 30 years old, a wife and mother, yet she didn't know how to drive, how to do the marketing, or how to keep house. On one of her first trips to the supermarket after she was married, Alice came home with a case of soap and only one potato. She thought that you could make a whole batch of mashed potatoes to feed a family with only one. Alice recalled fondly the 12 years she spent in the studio system. In her memoir, she creates the sense that she felt lucky to be among such talented professionals who are dedicated to making pictures. Alice referred to the studio system as a vast graduate school for performers. As the first queen of 20th Century Fox, Alice described her experiences there in terms of a fairy tale where she was like a princess kept safe in a castle. She and her fellow contract players may have jokingly referred to the studio as 20th Penitentiary, but it was a labor of love. In the 1980s, when she was asked what the big, biggest difference was between contemporary films and those from the golden age of Hollywood, Alice boiled it down to one word, love. In her day, making pictures was about getting as close to perfection as possible, even if that meant doing 20 takes or more for a scene. Sure, the film industry was a business, but it was also an art as Alice saw it. If they spent an hour or more so that a set could be properly lit, that was not something that was overlooked or dismissed. In 1940, Alice had been voted the most popular actress at the box office. Over the course of her career, she had 23 songs that became hits on the music charts. In That Night in Rio, she may not be the center of the plot and only sings two songs, but Alice has top billing, and when she is on screen, she runs away with a picture. She's at the height of her stardom in That Night in Rio. Everything about the production fires at the highest level, the cast, the costumes, and the plot. As Daryl Zanuck noted, success in movies boils down to three things, story, story, story. Zanuck made his start in Hollywood in Warner Brothers, writing Rin Tin Tin pictures. He used a number of aliases as screenwriter to disguise the fact that he wrote so many screenplays for the studio. He rose to be head of production in Warner's, and later in Fox, through his gift for writing stories ripped often straight from the headlines. Originally titled The Road to Rio, but changed so it wouldn't be mistaken for one of those road pictures in a franchise starring Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, That Night in Rio was Alice's 25th picture. She could have phoned it in by this point in her career, but Alice was a professional down to her bones. She gave audiences her all in every scene, from the way she lives each note she sings in a song, to the way she lets you know with a sly glance that she's on to her husband's little tricks, to the way she tries to disguise her desire for a man who only looks like her husband. The story for That Night in Rio is one of the most clever uses of the doppelganger formula on screen. 
Don Amici plays a nightclub entertainer, Larry Martin, who impersonates the Baron Manuel Duarte, played by Alice Fay. During the nightclub act one evening, Cecilia watches Larry spoof Manuel on stage with a spray of gray in his hair. Meanwhile, her real husband is backstage trying to put the moves on showgirls, shamelessly. For the number They Met in Rio, A Midnight Serenade, Don Amici sings in Portuguese, then Alice Faye sings it again in English. The music by Harry Warren and lyrics by Matt Gordon provide a tidy bit of exposition for the Duarte marriage. The song does the narrative heavy lifting. The audience doesn't need any flashbacks or dialogue to know more about the relationship between Cecilia and the Baron. As she sings, Alice Faye looks off into the distance as the lyrics recall real passion cut short by the obligation of another love. Was that an arranged marriage to Duarte? Alice sings an elegy to when passion was deferred for honor. Whether or not the Baron was the face in the locket she sings of, the song sets the tone of a passionless marriage, which is reinforced by Manuel's serial skirt chasing. After she finishes the song and looks up, Larry Martin is standing there, staring at her as though he'd like to have her between two pieces of toast. That Night in Rio presents an erotic fantasy for women. Alice Faye can have her cake and eat it too. She has the husband, and then she has his double, taking the charm to warp factor 10. Alice tries to keep her lust in check next to Larry Martin. She gives him, or attempts to, an ever-so-proper farewell. I hope I gave you new ideas to use as the Baron, she says, referring to the stage act. Don Amici leers at Alice and says, You gave me some new ideas to use as Martin which rattles her a little bit, as it would. Don Amici has arguably the randiest voice among the swoon swoon merchants of classic, classic Hollywood. He could turn the simplest statement into an invitation for hot sex. He makes everything sound like pillow talk. Truly, it's a gift. Especially next to those broad shoulders and perfect posture. For Alice's Cecilia, the rest of the picture is her struggle to keep her desire in check for this imposter. When she finds herself falling for her husband again during a big party to celebrate their wedding anniversary, she discovers it's really the twin Manuel, who was so attentive that Larry Martin, who is generous and lusty all along. The showstopper for this picture is from Travis Banton. Alice wears a gold halter neck gown that's gathered in folds across her hips. She's in monochrome looks here with her hair, that amber color, the gown, and later the sumptuous jewels she wears that that, um, the fake Baron gives her. The fake Baron, unlike the real one, Larry Martin, distinguishes himself by giving Cecilia an anniversary present. Inside the box is a large bib necklace made of topaz and diamonds. Unfortunately, the necklace is as fake as the Baron in this scene. It's made of glass and metal. The bib necklace is made by Joseph of Hollywood and was valued at $6,000 at the time. The studio rented jewels for 
pictures in Hollywood. It was standard practice. Joseph's necklace was first worn by Ona Munson during the Shanghai Affair in 1941. Then the necklace was also worn by Tallulah Bankhead in a royal scandal in 1945, then Linda Darnell in Forever Amber in 1947, and it also appeared in a wardrobe test worn by Gail Sondergaard in Anna and the King of Siam. On the screen, the necklace looks like the real thing. The bib jewels complements the amber tones in Alice's hair and the old gold color of the gown. Deep variations of gold, orange, and earthy brown sparkle with enough brilliance to illuminate the room when Alice enters. If the Baron can't see it, Larry Martin and the audience sure can. Alice as Cecilia is a stone-cold fox in gold lame. When she dances with Larry Martin, thinking he's the Baron, they are glued together on the dance floor. Cuddles notes, it's hard to tell where he leaves off and she begins. What's especially great about Alice's look in this scene is the contrast between the bombshell style she has and her walk. Alice walks with her shoulders thrust forward as though she were ready to swing a bat and aim high. She doesn't slink around and do some sexy wiggle. Her hips barely seem to move. Alice is propelled forward by her shoulders, determined, unshakable. She's no pushover. She's no plaything. She turns the tables on the Baron and and also Larry Martin. Carmen Miranda crashes the party to keep her eye on her lover, Larry Martin. The picture has a nice twist with how she can tell the Baron apart from Larry from a scratch on the wrist she had delivered earlier when his eyes started to wander. Alice also has a way of telling the Baron apart. Unlike Larry Martin, the Baron cannot sing. That night in Rio is delicious, a tall layer cake of glamour, lust, and mistaken identity. And the ending is sublime. The Baron, now chastened into realizing what a heel he's been to overlook his hot wife, sweeps her off the floor and runs up the stairs, carrying her in his arms. Alice tries to fight him off in this scene, unaware that it's really her husband. The speed at which Don Amici takes the stairs, combined with Alice's kicking the air in protest, is a seductive dance that makes the scene in Gone with the Wind pale by comparison. Eat your heart out, Scarlet and Rhett. The icing on the cake to this scene is that when they reach the top of the stairs, the scene cuts to the nightclub band and a close-up of the drummer with his hand pumping inside the percussive instrument for a little of the old in and out as the last word of this picture. The lads in Joseph Breen's production code office must have been asleep at the wheel. The innuendo is as plain as the gray powder in Don Amici's hair. That Night in Rio is the last of six pictures that Alice made with Don Amici. Alice adored him, like most people in the film colony. Looking back, she credited his longevity with his daily exercise regimen. Don walked 8 to 10 miles each day during his tenure at 20th Century Fox, 
Perhaps it was easier for a male star to make room for long walks because they didn't need to spend as much time in hair and makeup each day before production began at 9 o'clock. Don was more than a co-star. He was like family to Alice. He dabbled in matchmaking for both Alice and Tyrone Power, the third member of the Fox on-screen trio. One day, when Don visited Alice on the set of Sally, Irene, and Mary, he saw that she wasn't well and rang his doctor immediately to examine her. Alice was on the threshold of pneumonia. The doctor ordered her to bed at once, no doubt avoiding a more serious illness down the road. One night, while they were shooting that night in Rio, Alice went out on the town dancing in Charlie Foy's supper club. She ran into a friend, Jack Oakey who later that evening introduced her to the bandleader, Phil Harris. Phil Harris was a bandleader and also a popular cast member on the Jack Benny radio show. He played the ladies' man Lothario against Benny's straight man. He told stories of his wild romantic escapades and swinging nightlife. Alice and Phil danced that night, but not much else happened. Then one morning soon after, she let her dog out of the house off-leash early before she had to be in the studio. Phil Harris was doing the same, only I'm guessing maybe it was before bed rather than first thing in the morning. By coincidence, both Alice and Phil owned Doberman Pinschers. The dogs got into a fight. Naturally, Alice gave out to Phil, and he responded in kind. Later, he rang Alice, and they argued some more about the dogs. In a sudden shift of tone, Phil asked Alice to dinner, and she accepted. Two months later, they eloped in Mexico in May 1941. Since the ceremony was spur of the moment, friends went to a a nearby vegetable garden and picked a bouquet for Alice. She carried lettuce, cauliflower, and carrots down the aisle. There was some question about whether it was legal because the ceremony conflicted with the dates of Phil's divorce, So they were married again in the States. Alice and Phil were married for 54 years until he died. Born Alice Jean Leopard in 1915, she grew up on 10th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen. Later on, Alice referred to her address as Double Fifth Avenue to soften the associations the street had with notorious gangsters like the bootlegger Oney Madden, who controlled 10th Avenue among other parts of the city. Her father, Charles, whom she never spoke of later in life, was a policeman. Alice's mother, Alice, worked in a chocolate factory and later in a Cody perfume factory. Her grandmother, who was born in Dublin, looked after Alice and her brothers while her parents worked. Granny Moffat not only gave Alice love and affection, she also encouraged her dreams for show business. Alice used to sit on her fire escape, look out over the tenements, and dream about a life in show business and marrying a man in a tuxedo. When her mother caught wind of this fantasy about a man in a tuxedo, she poured cold water on it immediately. She said, waiters wear tuxedos, you know. Alice took her first job when she was only 12 years old. She collected the tap shoes that were used by students in a dance school. From the sidelines, Alice watched the lessons and practiced the steps at home. 
Alice noted, if you were pretty and grew up on Double Fifth Avenue, you either hit the stage or the streets. Alice and her granny would walk over Times Square, staring at the theater marquees and the posters, announcing the headliners for popular shows. Alice had her ambitions set for the chorus line to be a glamour showgirl on the stage. Her idol at the time was Marilyn Miller, the star of Ziegfeld Follies. Alice was in the audience for Miller's show, Sally, and thought that Marilyn was the embodiment of glamour. When she was 13, Alice joined her first chorus line for Earl Carroll's Vanities, having lied about her age. But after she was hired, Alice slipped up and admitted her real age and was let go. From that point, Alice put down 1912 as her year of birth, even though she was really born in 1915. She soon joined the Chester Hale Dance Troupe when she was still 13 to work in the chorus line at the Capitol Theater on Broadway. The Capitol was one of the low theaters owned by the MGM studio at the time when film studios held a monopoly on cinemas, which distributed and showed their products. The Capitol staged live performances between the screenings. Alice signed up for a rigorous schedule. She did five shows a day and seven on weekends. New routines were staged each week, which meant that the dancers had to rehearse the new ones for the following week in between performances. Alice was hired for Chester Hale at $35 a week. At this time, she took the stage name Faye to replace her family name Leopard because she liked the sound of it. She became lifelong friends with another quarrying, Betty King, from the Bronx. Betty was 14 years old and was also supporting her family, just like Alice. Most of the dancers in the company were teenagers, and many lied about their age. Alice stayed with the Chester Hale Company for two years, where she learned a lot about show business. She also went on tour with the company, her first time traveling outside of the city. On tour, she made $40 a week and sent half of it home to her parents. While she was dancing as a showgirl, Alice learned a lesson in longevity from Mae Murray, the silent film star known as the girl with the bee-stung lips. Mae was also dancing in a show on Broadway. She was 45 at the time, although Alice thought she was older. Alice asked Mae her secret for staying young. Mae told her that she had a massage every day. Alice remembered that. After she left Chester Hale, Alice joined the chorus line in the Hollywood Gardens, an outdoor venue supper club in Long Island, owned by Nils Thor Granlin, who owned the Hollywood restaurant on Broadway. Known simply by his initials NTG in the press and granny to his friends, he ran popular nightclubs with burlesque and chorus reviews. Granlin started out as a publicist for MGM and Lowe Theatres, He's the man who invented the movie trailer. Many stars started out in one of Granny's shows, including Joan Crawford. I told you about him in in the episode on Yvonne DiCarlo. He was the burlesque producer who didn't make girls open their blouses for inspection before they were hired, unlike Earl Carroll. Shortly after Granny published his memoir, he died in a Las Vegas car crash, 
and Yvonne paid for his funeral. In 1931, Alice Faye was 16 when she went to work for Granny. He recalled in his memoir that she was a standout in a coarse line of 24 girls. One night, he told her he would give her a specialty number of her own. She refused to do it. When he asked why, Alice replied that he would make fun of her out there on the stage in front of the audience. As the MC for the shows, he often made jokes at the expense of the acts on stage. The Hollywood Gardens was a big outdoor venue with a moat filled with ducks and swans and a bridge in front of a large circular stage. It sat 2,500 people for dinner. Granlin noted that he could tell Alice Faye was a gal who knew her own mind, so he took a different approach than trying to convince her otherwise. He told her to to have the dance number ready the following week or she would be out of a job. She was ready when the time came and went over big with the crowd. For her next assignment, Granny asked Alice to prepare a song for the following week. When she objected, he said that he would add an extra $25 to her weekly pay. Alice was more pragmatic than shy and accepted. Granny wrote that Alice was the only one from the Hollywood Gardens Review that he hired for his Hollywood restaurant on Broadway at the end of the summer. In Granlin's Broadway Supper Club, Alice did five or six shows a day. By Granny's own account, Rudy Valley was in the audience one night at the Hollywood restaurant and asked to meet his blonde canary. Valley wanted Alice for the new George White scandals of 1931. George White's name was as big as Florence Ziegfeld's on Broadway. He was known for lavish shows with gorgeous women and flamboyant costumes. Rudy had top billing in the show. Granlin recalled that Alice was especially loyal to him since he had launched her as a singer. She was so loyal she was prepared to turn down the job in the Scandal's review. Rudy Valley persuaded Granny to intervene and convince Alice to leave and take the job at the bigger show. But Rudy Valley tells it a different way, which is that he met Alice after she was already cast in the chorus for Scandal's. George White's Scandals of 1931 started Rudy Valley, as well as Ethel Merman, Ray Bolger, and Ethel Barrymore Colt, the daughter of the great Ethel Barrymore. Not only was Alice now in a course line of a huge Broadway production making $60 a week, she also had her actor's equity card that marked her out as a member of an elite group of performers. In an interview from 1935, looking back on her days as a quarrying, Alice noted that it was the happiest time of her life. Rudy Valley gave Alice's career a big boost when he signed her to join his radio show after scandals closed. Rudy, Rudy was one of the biggest radio stars and on Broadway. His star persona was built on his education as a Yale man, a big band leader, MC and singer, who was well-mannered, proper, but made a little bit more daring by the hey-hey crowd of the nightclubs and dance halls. He became the most popular of the jazz age megaphone crooners. At the time he met Alice, he was making a cool $7,500 a week combined from work on stage and the radio. Rudy took Alice on as a protege. 
Her voice was just the right sultry pitch to make her stand out as a crooner. And she didn't need a megaphone to help her voice carry. She was naturally gifted. Rudy advised her to wear satin gowns and make her hair, her blonde hair, even lighter. Alice's voice was magic. She became the voice of a generation. It was full of wistful romance when she sang. Better days were just around the corner. Alice's voice was twinkling lights, first love, and all the comforts of home. Alice's voice was as soothing as a hot bubble bath. She could make you hope. Rudy, Alice, and the band often traveled from one gig to another in his Cadillac, with Rudy behind the wheel, Alice in the front seat, and other band members in the back. Rumors began to circulate almost immediately about the married band leader carrying on with the new singer. At the time, Rudy was married to actress Faye Webb. One night after finishing at a nightclub gig, Alice joined Rudy in his Cadillac with the other band members. Rudy fell asleep at the wheel and crashed the car. Alice was the only one who was seriously hurt. The impact hit her in the pelvis. As a result, she had lower back pain for the rest of her life. After the accident, she also had cuts on her face from the windshield glass and couldn't work until the stitches were removed weeks later. That wasn't the only time that Rudy Valley fell asleep at the wheel when Alice was next to him, but the next crash wasn't as severe. In 1933, Winnie Sheehan and Fox Studio decided to produce George White's Scandals for the screen. Rudy and Alice joined the cast. She invited her friend Betty King, the pal from her quarrying days with Chester Hale, to make the move to Hollywood with her and work as her stand-in at Fox. Betty King was dating Walter Scharf, one of Rudy Valley's lead musicians. Alice was stricken with nerves when she started working on her first picture, but she enjoyed the intensity and the camaraderie on set. She had a fantastic number where she sings, Oh, You Nasty Man. The studio makeover gave her the Harlow treatment, platinum hair and plucked brows. Looking back, Alice had hoped to be styled more along the lines of Marlena Dietrich in pantsuits. During production of George White's Scandals, just as she was thanking her lucky stars for landing in Hollywood, Alice was hit with real-life scandal. Rudy's wife, actress Faye Webb, had filed for divorce and named Alice in her suit. Journalists had a field day with stories about how the platinum blonde bombshell was a love thief. Even worse, perhaps, than the bad publicity, Faye Webb received a court order that placed a hold on Alice Alice Faye's salary. Since Faye was suing for alienation of affection, she had a court injunction which froze Alice's weekly paycheck. Alice was supporting her family at the time and needed the money. Alice tried to keep her head down and focus on work and ignore the negative publicity. Alice had only signed a contract with Fox for one picture, so her future in the studio was uncertain. She could have been dropped like a poisoned hot potato, 
as many studios were allergic to a whiff of scandal attached to any star, let alone a new hire who was inexperienced and untested with the public. Alice was lucky. No one stepped forward with evidence that could prove an affair. Gossip writers must have looked for proof of an affair, but came up short. Alice had to testify in court. She maintained there and for the rest of her life that she was never romantically involved with Rudy Valley. Alice had been grateful to him for advancing her career, and that was it. She also noted during her court testimony the number of times that Rudy wired his wife Faye or begged her to join him on their tours. In the end, Alice escaped unscathed from the divorce suit. Strangely, Faye Webb died only two years later, in 1936, in a hospital after she developed peritonitis during a stomach operation. Some people noted that Faye Webb took a sharp, sharp downcline, or sorry, down, downturn into drugs after the divorce and lost her contract at MGM. Over the years, Alice Faye cobbled together enough know-how how to perform in show business, but once she signed a long-term contract with Fox Studio in 1934, she had lessons in earnest, everything from posture and deportment to beauty makeovers, and lessons in acting, singing, and dance. Reviews for George White's scandals were unenthusiastic, but Alice did receive good notices. And Winnie Sheehan liked her and saw her potential. She was only 18 years old and about to get the big star buildup. Sheehan sent her over to Western Avenue Studio to gain experience in B pictures to learn the fundamentals of the screen acting craft. Saul Wurzel was head of production for the B unit, and where pictures were generally made in a little more than three weeks. In 1935, Alice once again found herself neck deep in scandal. This time, it had nothing to do with being a love thief. Instead, she became the villain in a family saga that could have ended her career. Back in New York City, her father, Charles Leppert, had been living on his own. The rest of the family lived with Alice in California. One day in November 1935, Leper collapsed and was taken to Bellevue Hospital. Hospital staff didn't know who he was at first and had trouble locating the family. When the news reached Hollywood, Alice, her mother, and brother Charlie hopped on a train for New York. Charles Leppert died on Thanksgiving before they arrived. The press ran wild with the story of a star's father, who had died in a charity ward hospital. New York papers carried headlines such as Alice Faye's father rests rich in death and Alice Faye's father dies in charity ward. The bad publicity continued for a few days after the funeral when Alice petitioned the court to have her name legally changed from Leopard to Faye her professional stage name. The publicity department in Fox went into action to stop the stories that portrayed Alice as ungrateful or cold. The Leopards had been separated for years, but the angle that Alice had gone to Hollywood and forgotten her dear old dad held traction. 
In time, the bad publicity passed, much for the same reason that it had during Faye Webb's divorce suit. Alice had built a reputation for leading a quiet life. She worked hard, she lived with her mother and brother, and as well as her friend and stand-in Betty King. Betty King recalled that Alice's mother was more maternal and caring than her own. And both Alice and her mother refused to take any money from Betty for bills, rent, or housekeeping. They knew that Betty sent money back to her own family in New York. Alice's home life was rock solid. There were really no darts to throw there. As a rising star, Alice had the typical unsavory experiences with men in the studio. Spencer Tracy was difficult on the set of Now I'll Tell from 1934. Not only was he his usual angry drunk self, but he also groped Alice's thighs under the table when they filmed the nightclub scenes together. After her experience with co-star Al Jolson on the set of The Rose of Washington Square in 1939, Alice thought he was the most awful man she had ever known. Years later, when she passed the cemetery where he was buried, she wondered how the enormous gravestone could keep him down. I guess he was so rotten, no stone could be big enough. And then there was the studio boss, Daryl Zanuck. Alice signed with Fox one year before the merger that transformed the place into 20th Century Fox in 1935 which placed Daryl Zanuck as vice president and head of production. Initially, he viewed Alice as just another platinum blonde contract player. A year later, in 1936, he viewed the rushes for Sing Baby Sing and reappraised Alice's potential. In a memo to producer Ken McGowan and director John Cromwell, Zanuck argued that they should stop looking for a star to play in This Is My Affair. He wrote, We have right here on the lot a girl who is climbing to stardom so rapidly that we are unable to keep up with the demands of exhibitors in connection with her. I am speaking about Alice Fay. I have just come from the projection room and saw three cut dramatic episodes of her from Sing Baby Sing. I have never seen her look so gorgeous. Her new hairdress has changed her into a new girl. She is glamorous, exciting, and is certainly a young Mae West in physique and attitude. You can bet your last dollar that Faye will be a star. A year later, Alice starred in On the Avenue, the biggest musical production the studio had thus ventured. Irving Berlin considered no one else but Alice to do justice to his songs. Although Zanuck recognized Alice's talent, he still used the same bully tactics from the mogul arsenal. Zanuck believed that Alice's face looked too chubby on screen and ordered a diet or else she'd lose her contract. While she kept a brutal schedule, working at least 12 hours a day for six days a week, Alice was given nothing but cottage cheese and sliced tomato for lunch. Truly, I would stab someone in the eye with a fork if they told me that that's all I had to look forward to in the middle of a very long day. Zanuck worked her like a dog. It was not unusual for Alice to finish one picture in the morning and start on a new one after lunch. 
For years, Alice made four or five pictures a year back to back. She had little time off between pictures, which led to a host of health problems. She suffered with flu, bronchitis, and was on the brink of pneumonia frequently from lack of rest. Zanuck's grueling schedule was probably also responsible for her brief marriage to Tony Martin. Tony Martin toured with a big band while she made one picture after another. Their marriage couldn't withstand the separation. Once news of Tony's philandering on the road reached Alice in Hollywood, she had had enough and called it quits. She had sacrificed her marriage at the altar of Fox Studio. After years of doing musicals, Alice then wanted a new challenge. She wanted to prove she could really act in a serious drama. Zanuck refused. He was patronizing. He told her that the audience wanted Alice as she was, in a picture with a little song, a little dance, and a little romance. It was their job to give the public what they wanted, so why didn't she just go back to rehearsing that new number? He adopted a conservative view that held fast to typecasting, rather than letting his star develop her talent in other films. When the studio cast Allison down Argentine Way in 1940, she begged off because she was sick again. She had a stomach operation. Alice later denied it was appendicitis or an abortion. At any rate, she was unable to do the picture. Zanuck signed Betty Grable, who was in the middle of a Broadway show. It was a favorite power play used among moguls like Mayer and Warner to have a second stringer to use as backup as a threat to a star if she became too demanding. The studio publicity cranked out the usual tabloid nonsense about a feud between two top-billed blondes. But nothing could be further from the truth. Both Alice and Betty were wise to the game Zanuck tried to play. They got on famously and were friends until the day Betty died. Betty Grable developed a reputation for being a team player just like Alice. She was known for taking Marilyn Monroe under her wing when they starred together years later in How to Marry a Millionaire. Women in the studio system more often worked together than they spent time in feuds. Alice was lucky to have men around her who weren't stinkers, like Don Amici, director Henry King, and Ty Power. After Ty was coldly sacked from her picture Sing Baby Sing in 1936, Alice reached out to give him a pep talk. Alice had shown Ty Power kindness when he least expected it. She could see the talent and the goodness in him. He was a loyal friend until he died. Alice made three pictures with Ty and Don. They became something of a notorious trio on the lot, spending time concocting pranks for one another. The lads did a number on Alice one day, soon after she moved into her ultra-posh new dressing room. Ruth Waterbury wrote about it for an article in Photoplay magazine in 1940. Once Alice had settled into her new nest, made of satin and hand-finished cabinetry, and flouncy lampshades, deep carpeting, the boys snuck in and wrecked the joint, just to remind Alice that she shouldn't get any notions. 
When Alice saw her gowns trampled on the floor, cold cream smeared over satin, and broken porcelain, she didn't cry, and she didn't scream. She laughed. And then she planned her revenge. One day, she tiptoed into Ty's cubicle dressing room and found his new imported English brogues that had cost $35 a pair. Calmly, she took out a hammer and nailed the shoes to the floor just where he had left them. When she was cast in Fallen Angel, Alice believed that Zanuck was finally giving her a chance in a juicy, dramatic role. She was able to meet the challenge of working with Otto Preminger and felt she did well in the role. But she had a big shock during the studio preview of Fallen Angel. Her part was cut down in favor of building up Linda Darnell. Alice appeared in less than 12 scenes. Her part was chopped down to the bare minimum. Nothing made sense about our character. Alice was seething with rage and frustration. That was it. Alice wrote a scathing note to Zanuck and stormed out. She didn't pack her things, she just left. And she never revealed what she had written in the note to Zanuck, though you might assume there were a number of four-letter words included. Alice's brother had put her on an allowance once she joined 20th Century Fox, unlike, say, Jean Tierney's father, Esther Williams' first husband, Esther Ralston's first husband, or the way Gloria Swanson let Joe Kennedy manage her money. Just a few examples of women who were driven into bankruptcy by men who mismanaged their money. Alice had a trustworthy brother who had her best interests at heart. When she left, Alice had savings and investments that allowed her to walk out the door and never look back. But Alice did not really retire from show business once she left Fox Studio. She was a top star in radio for years with a weekly program with her husband. Alice loved doing radio and later television because it satisfied her need to work without becoming a drain as with her work in film. Alice was there for her daughters, Alice and Phyllis. She did one last picture in 1962. State Fair was not a great experience for Alice. It was more of a star vehicle for Anne Margaret. In later years, Alice accepted an offer from Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. They had her travel around the states giving inspirational talks and taking questions about how to live well and age well. In one Q&A, Alice admitted she would love to join the cast of one of those nighttime soaps like Dynasty or Dallas. It's a pity no one gave her that offer. Alice came up with the Pfizer Five, her wellness advice for growing older and staying young. Her advice boiled down to a healthy diet, exercise, try not to smoke, stay busy, and make regular visits to your doctor. In the book she wrote about it, Alice also recommended a slant board. She took the one she used in the Fox studio and used it for 15 minutes each day. Something about the blood rushing to her head provided a daily tonic that restored energy. In 1939, Alice had defined what glamour meant to her in a feature for Glamour of Hollywood magazine. Alice wrote that it was simply when women made advantageous use of their talents and gifts. She said, if I have any, 
Alice wrote, it must be the reflection of my deep and sincere desire for, for a full expression of life. In the end, that's a fair description of an earnest performer and a life well lived. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Growing Older, Staying Young by Alice Fay, published in 1990. Alice Fay, A Life Beyond the Silver Screen by Jane Lenz Elder from 2002. The Alice Fay Movie Book by W. Franklin Mosier, published in 1974. Blondes, Brunettes, and Bullets by Nils Thor Granlin with Sid Fader and Ralph Hancock, published in 1957. Memos from Daryl F. Zanuck, The Golden Years, A 20th Century Fox, edited by Rudy Bellmer, published in 1993. If you enjoy Sassmouth Dame's podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes? Join me next time for episode 92 when I talk about Miriam Hopkins in The Story of Temple Drake from 1933. Thanks very much.